Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Rob brings us a New Year's Day message, which challenges us to go into the world and make disciples. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Rob. Happy New Year. Okay, there's a bunch of you here. We've been misdiagnosing numbers for the past. We're like, no one's going to show up on Christmas. Yeah, they did. They showed up on Christmas. The blizzard made things difficult. We really, maybe we were projecting our own desire to not go out in the blizzard onto you, but you all showed up. We had actually a big weekend last weekend. And uh, there's more people here than I expected this morning as well. So that's fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Um, speaking about new beginnings and New Year's, how many of you actually have made New Year's resolutions or have one this year? You don't have to say what it is, but if, raise your hand if you've said, yes, I have a New Year's resolution. There's a few of you. Okay. That's good. Best of luck to you all with that. Um, They're hard. I was thinking about this, but resolutions are difficult. Um, This is the time of year that if you go to a gym regularly, you hate January. Because there's all these people, and none of them seem to know how to use the equipment. They don't wipe it down right. And, you know, just February's right around the corner. It'll all settle down by then. They'll all have given up. Um, I just admitted in the office that I just canceled the gym membership uh, that I when I got the cancellation thing, the date that I joined the gym, this is maybe fate, um, February 20 of 2020. I worked out for three weeks and they shut the whole world down and I never went back. Okay, for a while I wasn't paying on it because they, they froze all those things. But I paid for that for like a year and a half without going back. Resolutions. Um, I think sometimes, though, we just we bite off a little bit more than we can chew, right? Like, we think, we're going to make this huge change in our life. I'm going to, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my whole life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat vegetarian from now on. And, of course, that, you know, is going to be a really difficult thing for us to do because we try sometimes to take on too, too much. And I wonder if we, if we made resolutions that were actually small and attainable, um, that those small changes in our life might lead to bigger changes later, but we, we would feel some success and maybe continue on with those things. So my encouragement is to not, not to not do resolutions, but to do ones that like actually move you towards something maybe more slowly than normal. Anyway, I do wish you all the best in your resolutions for this year. Uh, today we are kicking off the new year. Um, I have actually been uh, for the last three years, I think, I preached the week after Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas, and every year that's at the end of the year, and this is the first year that I've actually preached uh, in the new year. So I'm excited to do that. Um, I also have a little bit of a blank slate today. As you may know, if you've been around for a while, we've been preaching through the book of Matthew for like a year and a half, um, and we just ended that series, and we're about to jump into a new series, but... This week is a, a kind of open window for me to decide what to, to preach about. And I've been thinking for a while now, we've been having some conversations, um, and I'll explain that in a minute, but I've been thinking for a while now, I really want to touch on the idea of discipleship. And um, anyway, so I've been thinking about that. Harbor churches, uh, for the past number of months, we've had lots and lots of meetings, staff 
meetings and, and pastors and coming together. And we've been really trying to think about what is our vision for Harbor Churches for the next few years. And specifically, one thing keeps coming up, and, and we keep driving down into it, and that's this idea of discipleship. One thing we really want to see is deeper discipleship in all of our churches. And so we've been talking about that quite a bit. And um, I would say that probably we've been meeting for seven or eight months talking about this. I'm looking at Abby, but it's like it was most of the year we, we really drove down into this. And, and we're getting really specific with, like, what kind of goals do we want to have on our campuses? And what, what kind of transformation do we want to see in people's lives? And so we've really been talking about it um, very specifically for a while. And there was talk for a little bit about doing a discipleship series at the beginning of the year. And I was like, sign me up for that because I want to be a part of whatever we're doing uh, when it comes to discipleship. Um, we're not going to do that. We're going to do Genesis. But today I get to talk about discipleship. So that's where we're going today. Um, I've been thinking about this idea a lot, and then last week, Pastor Tim was like, hey, Rob, if you're looking for scripture uh, for next week, he said, we, we got through all of Matthew, but we never did the Great Commission. And I said, oh, I'll do that. Like, that's right up my alley. That is perfect. I happen to know this scripture passage very well. Um, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, well, maybe a month or so now, um, my wife Shanna and I flew to um, Colorado and drove up to Cheyenne, Wyoming, Shanna and I were on staff with the Young Life in Cheyenne um, at the very beginning of that Young Life area. Uh, so I got to be the, uh, they, they did this past, present, and future thing at their banquet. And so Shanna and I got to be the ghosts of Christmas past. And we got to come in and talk about how that area got started. And, and the core scripture passage that I used was the Great Commission. Um, if you know Young Life, that, that passage of scripture is like burned into the fabric of their culture. Um, and we'll get to the scripture in a minute, but there, there's like these four separate actions that the Great Commission calls us to, uh, but it starts with go. Go. Um, and the reason I use that scripture there is because that's how we got to Cheyenne. It was that scripture that drove us to say, yeah, we're going to leave like our home and we're going to go somewhere else where we don't really know anybody and we're going to start something new um, because we feel like uh, this is our call, right? We've been trying to live into that, um, into that call for a large part of our lives. So, so that's how we got to Cheyenne, and we got to talk to them about that. Uh, so even though we're technically done with Matthew, today we're going to spend a little bit more time right at the very end of the book um, before we jump into Genesis next week. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at... Um, Matthew 28, and specifically the last few verses of that, verses 16 through 20. Um, in Matthew, there is, uh, this is, so this is post-resurrection, right? Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, they go to the tomb, the tomb is empty, and Jesus shows up. There's, this is really um, the only time that the disciples see Jesus after the resurrection in the book of Matthew. There are other books of the Bible where there's more uh, content of like Jesus interacting with his disciples, but in Matthew it's pretty brief. And so um, we'll just pick it up at verse 16. Um, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So it's a very brief little passage and this ends the, ends the book of Matthew and then um, there's a few things that I think when I read this over, I, I tend to focus on, on Jesus' sort of directive and his command. But as I was reading this passage, I was like, oh, there's a few interesting things going on here. First of all, you might notice that we're down to 11 disciples, right? Jesus had 12 disciples that followed him. Obviously, at this point, it's, it's post-crucifixion. Judas, who has betrayed Jesus, has taken his own life. Um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Peter had essentially denied Jesus, denied knowing him, and in a sense, took himself out of discipleship. Um, this is, uh, after that, Jesus reinstated Peter. Uh, that's not found in Matthew. It's actually found in the book of John uh, in chapter 21. But Jesus has another interaction with his disciples, and he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus actually uses the same words that he used at the beginning of the book, and he says, follow me, and he reinstates Peter. So we have 11 disciples, and they show up. It says they go to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus told them to go to. So earlier in this, um, earlier in this chapter of Matthew, we hear the story of how Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb, and they're there to, to visit Jesus' body and maybe, maybe care for it, maybe, maybe do some more kind of post, uh, post-death um, care for the body. And they get there, and an angel's there, and an angel tells them, Jesus isn't here. Jesus wants you to tell the disciples to go to Galilee and go to this mountain. And then they leave that, the angel, and they actually run into Jesus, which is really random. I, was, I kept reading it over, and I'm like, yeah, it's just really strange. The angel tells them to go, and then they find Jesus somewhere on the road. And Jesus tells them the same thing. He says, tell the disciples to meet me on this mountain in Galilee. And so that's where they're headed. The disciples are headed to Galilee. And we believe that the mountain, the, the mountain that they go to is Mount Arbel. Um, I actually have a picture of it. And I think I do, anyway. Is it up there? Yeah, there it is. Um, it's, a, it's a decent picture, but it gives you an idea of, the, of the, the, the scope. You get up on this mountain, you can really see a lot of the surrounding area. And it, it looks over the uh, Sea of Galilee. So it's a very picturesque thing. It, it gives you a sense of, of bigness of the world, right? So it's a really interesting place that Jesus chooses to do this, to have this meeting. Um, so they go there on their own. They meet Jesus. He's already there waiting for them. And I'm, I'm, I'm also a little bit interested in their initial reaction. So first it says that they worshiped him, but then there's a short little line in there that says, but some of them doubted. And I don't really know what to do with that um, because it doesn't say who doubted. It doesn't say how many of them doubted. It doesn't even really give us the sense that um, maybe there's more people that showed up too. Maybe the 11 disciples are there, but maybe there's other people uh, that also showed up and maybe those people doubt. The only other instance of a, of a disciple doubting Jesus post-resurrection is the, the story of Thomas. Um, and Thomas actually doubted before he saw Jesus. Once he saw Jesus, he didn't doubt anymore. So it's a really strange, short little statement in here. And, and Matthew just kind of drops it in there and just leaves it there. And as I thought about this, I thought, well, I mean, maybe this is a helpful thing for us, right? 
that Jesus' own disciples, the, the guys that walked with him for three years, that knew him inside and out, spent every day with him for years, um, see him in person and still there's some doubt. And I know that a lot of people I know, especially inside the church, especially if you've grown up in the church, doubting is like a bad thing. It's like, it's not allowed. Questioning and doubting and and. I just think this normalizes it for me a little bit. It's like, you know what? If Jesus' disciples doubted, I think it's okay for us to have doubts. It's a very normal thing for us to do. It causes us to question, right? It causes us to, it causes us to dig deeper. It causes us to look into our faith even more. Um, and so I think if Jesus' closest friends had some doubts, it's okay for us to do that too. Anyway. So finally, we get to the, the kind of the meat of this passage. Jesus meets them, and he speaks to them, and he starts talking to them with a pretty big claim, right? There's a proclamation at the beginning of this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal, and it's something that I don't think about very much because I think of the way that I grew up, the environment I grew up in. So I'll tell you a really quick story, but um, I have a friend, he's a pastor, he's a pastor in California now, but uh, he was my youth pastor when I was growing up, and he had this uh, theory, he called it functional Unitarianism, which is a very fancy way to say, the way that you grow up, the religious experiences you grow up in have a tendency to... uh, cause you to focus on a specific part of God, right? So we believe in a Trinitarian God, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But because of how we're taught or, or the environment we grow up in, we sort of lean into one of those, one of those three, right? So for me, I grew up in a Reformed church um, in the 70s and 80s, and our congregation, I would say, tended to be quite God the Father heavy. Like, we were focused on God the Father, and it was very, we had lots of rules, and we had lots of... Um, judgment. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if I would say that we liked judgment, but we sure fed off of it quite a bit. Um, And so that was kind of how I grew up. When I I thought about God, I thought about God the Father. But I had friends that lived in the same town that were uh, members of the Pentecostal church. And they would always talk about the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's work, what he's doing. And it's almost like, I, I mean, it's really almost like we sort of ignore the other two parts. And when I went from my Reformed Church uh, experience growing up into young life, I realized, oh, these people are just Jesus people. Like, they barely talk about anything else, you know? I mean, they do. They talk about all the parts of God, but, but Jesus is the focus. In fact, and, and, I, and I agree with this. This is why I did it as long as I did it. But I, I think the only way to really understand all the Scripture is to look at it through the lens of who Jesus was. So... So we tend to do this. And so this claim for me as a reform kid is like, oh, well, Jesus is now on the throne. Jesus is, he, the authority is his now. And this, this recalls, um, if you were here for the Revelation series, right? The lamb is on the throne. Who's on the throne? Jesus is on the throne. And so this is a big claim. And he's saying, with all of this authority, now I'm going to tell you what to do. And he immediately follows that up with, therefore, go. Go. It's an action step, right? Don't, don't stay here. 
Don't wait for something to come to you. I want you to go. I think this is a non-negotiable. After a claim of authority that Jesus makes like that, his first words are to go. And I've said this a lot of times in my years in ministry. Um, the Bible has so much history in it. Um, it's, it's, it's lots of historical facts. The Bible has lots of moral um, lessons for us to learn. But I think the Bible isn't a history book, and it's not, a, it's not a book of morality. I think the Bible is a call to action. I thought this for a long time, right? When Jesus is telling these 11 disciples to go, he's actually telling me to go, too. I mean, if I read it as a historical book, it's just a story about Jesus telling these guys something. But if I read it as a call to action, then Jesus is telling me to do that, too. It means I have to move, right? I mean, I need to go somewhere. It doesn't necessarily mean I need to like move where I live and go to another place, but it could mean that. And it has meant that in the past. The disciples are being sent. And they're being sent to do a very specific job, which is to make more disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, what we just did here, I want you to continue to go do that. We're seeing the process Right, lived out with the disciples in this moment. For three years, these guys followed Jesus around. They listened to everything he taught them. They, um, they ate with him. They walked around with him. They imitated everything that he did. They obeyed everything he told them to do for the most part, pretty close. And that's the life of a disciple, right? The disciple imitates the teacher. I was thinking about this in terms of like, what would this look like today? And I was thinking... If you, if you know what, like, somebody that apprentices at a job does, right, they learn under somebody, so somebody teaches them how to do whatever it is that they're learning how to do, and the way that they do it is they just imitate the master. So if you're, if you're an apprentice electrician, you're just looking at what the master electrician is doing, and you're doing the same thing. And if your work looks like his work, that's success. You want it to be as close as possible to what your teacher is doing, Right? And when we talk about disciples and discipleship, this is what we should be thinking about. Because I think we have a different idea of what discipleship is sometimes. Um, I've known people that are like, oh, I, 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 need to be in, I need to be in discipleship, so I, I'm going to go to a Bible study. That's great. It's a good idea, but it's only part of it, right? Because there are lots of great Bible studies out there that can teach us a lot of really great things. But the heart of the gospel is to learn more about Jesus so that we become like Jesus. How can we best learn to be like Jesus? We can read his words, but we also have to live in a way that he commanded us to. We have to do the things that he said to do. And it's that imitation of Jesus that if we keep doing that over and over again, the more we will look like Jesus. And I can't make disciples that look like Jesus unless I myself look like Jesus, right? I can't teach what I don't do or don't know. My life should remind people of, of Jesus. And if they don't know Jesus, then they should be asking, why are you the way you are? And then that gives me a chance to tell them why. Our lives should remind people of Jesus. And I do believe, I do believe that it's specifically my job as a follower of Jesus to continue to reflect Jesus to everybody in my life 
And it's true for anyone, I think, claiming to be a follower of Jesus, that they do that. Making disciples that look and act like Jesus is the job of everyone claiming to be a Christian. Of course, it doesn't always work out like that, right? It doesn't always look like that. There are many people that claim to be followers of Jesus. Maybe it's because they grew up in the church. Maybe it's because they go to church every week. Maybe I, Whatever the reason is they're claiming to be followers of Jesus, there's lots of people that claim that. And their lives do not remind us of the grace and the mercy that Jesus exhibited. They just, their lives don't look like it. And I think, you know what, that, that's something that I've struggled with for a long time. When I think about the church, I'm like, yeah, I mean, they, everybody says they're following Jesus, but it, it doesn't always look like it. And if, if their lives don't look like it, then I don't know if it's Jesus they're really following. And that's a pretty strong statement to make. I understand that. Also, I'm glad that I'm not the one that has to decide or judge whether or not they are. It's not my job to do that. I mean, let's be honest. The call to live like Jesus on our lives is not an easy call, right? It's a hard thing to do. How many times did Jesus make his disciples uncomfortable? Every time. Everything Jesus did made his disciples uncomfortable. He was always doing things and telling them to do things that put them outside of of where they wanted to be, right? It made them uncomfortable. They were always on the move. They were always hanging out with people that were problematic, the sinners and tax collectors. As I was writing this, the the words (laughs) prostitutes, publicans, and pariahs popped into my head, and I was like, yeah, that basically covers it. That's who Jesus hung out with. All the people that were outside were who Jesus hung out with. Shunned people of dubious character, right? Cast aside by most of the culture. And then there were all those sick people that Jesus was always around, right? And every single one of them, probably because of the sickness, had some you know, sense of, of being kicked out, right? They're unclean. They're unclean for some reason. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the story of the disciples when they meet a blind man, and they, their question to Jesus was, who sinned to make this guy blind? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus' answer was no. It wasn't either of them. In this moment, that man is blind because we're gonna, we're gonna see God's power happen. But that was the thing. If something was wrong with you, if you had an illness or if you had a, a, you know, something wrong with your body, that meant it was your fault. You did something wrong. These are people that the disciples didn't really want to be around. And this was constantly who they were around with Jesus. These were the people Jesus was called to. And now he's telling these men that they need to go and do likewise. You now go and you make disciples. It's your turn. They're being sent right back into the mess, right? Because I'm sure that most, if not all the disciples, and we get hints of this throughout scripture, most, if not all of the disciples thought when Jesus finally takes over and sits on his throne, we're gonna be sitting next to him and life's gonna be pretty nice, right? I mean, we see them battling over it, right? Can I sit on your left or your right? Or who's the greatest among us, right? Their idea of what was gonna happen was not what happened. The crucifixion was not in their plans, right? Right? 
And Jesus is now calling them back into that same life that they've been living. Only now it's their turn to be the teachers. And they're expected to go out into the world to continue this mission. And I wanna take a minute now, I'm gonna jump out of Matthew and just take a quick look at a couple of verses in the book of Acts. So the ascension happens in the very first chapter of Acts and Jesus says a few more words to his disciples before that happens. So I'm just gonna read uh, verses eight and nine because to just go seems very vague. So maybe Jesus will clear this up. Go where? Um, so let's read verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So where did Jesus tell them to go? He says go and then he tells them where? Well, they all went different places. <laughs> Lots of places, right? First, Jesus mentions Jerusalem. They know Jerusalem. Uh, that's kind of home base for them. It's their capital. It's where all the, all the festivals happen. It's where they're told to go several times a year for those reasons. It's home base. They know those people. They also know that those people in Jerusalem just killed Jesus, which means they're supposed to go there and continue to witness to Jesus, witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, the place that just killed their teacher. And then he mentions Judea. Judea is the southern part of, the, of Israel, and Jerusalem is in Judea, but it's, it's a much larger region, right? It's not just hometown. It's like this, this big region in the south, and it includes all the coastal towns, and there's going to be a lot of walking and going and going from village to village, a lot like what they've been doing for the past few years, right? And then he mentions Samaria, Samaria, they don't even like those people. In fact, those, the, all of those disciples would have been raised to avoid contact with anybody from Samaria, right? They would have learned that when you're going through Samaria, you go quickly and you don't engage with anybody as much as it's possible. By the way, knowing that, knowing that about their relationship with Samaria always makes um, John chapter four to me so interesting because Jesus ends up walking through Samaria, and instead of just ignoring everybody, Jesus decides to have a conversation with a Samaritan, which was a no-no, and a woman, which was also a no-no, two different no-nos. <laughs> and Jesus decides this is a great time to just engage somebody in conversation. And all these disciples end up spending two days in that village talking to all these Samaritans. And the result is that a lot of those people believed in Jesus as the Messiah. It's almost as if Jesus was modeling something for his disciples that he might ask them to do later. Isn't that kind of crazy? And then Jesus says the ends of the earth, and that would be like the rest of the known world, which primarily is around the Mediterranean, right? The Roman Empire and Greece and Egypt and all those places where there are all those Gentiles that are different from us, and we're not supposed to connect with them either. Jesus is sending them to be witnesses to their own people locally, to be witnesses to the larger region, and to be witnesses across the world. So basically, Jesus covers all the bases. Just go. And that's where the disciples end up going. They go all over, right? Christianity spreads throughout Israel, but it also spreads through the region and to the whole known world. And in a surprising turn of events, 
One of the reasons it could spread was because Rome, which was the oppressive government, also knew how to build roads. And so people could travel and they could get to places. And so the word of Jesus spread all over the earth. And not everybody's story of going and making disciples is gonna look different. I discovered when I was in college that um, I, I shouldn't have been this naive, but I grew up in a kind of a religious bubble, at least my, my home and community. And what I realized in college was there were people in my hometown that didn't know the story of Jesus. I was blown away. Again, I should have known that before I was in college, but I was like, wow, they just have literally never heard the story. They've never been to church. They didn't go to Christian school or whatever it is. And so my first couple of years of ministry were in my hometown. Actually, not my The town next to my hometown where I did ministry at the rival high school of my own high school, which was kind of fun. Um, but there were tons of people there, students in my experience at least, that had never heard the story of Jesus in my own hometown. And then a couple of years later, I was asked to go somewhere else and, and start a Young Life area in a different town. And so I did that, and it was, it was fine. I was only a couple hours from home, and I could get back, and I could visit. And then one day, somebody said, would you go to Cheyenne, Wyoming? And I was like, what? And that's my ends of the earth story, because it felt like that. I went somewhere that I didn't know anybody, and it, it took real time and real money to get back home to see people that I knew and loved. I was never going to, you know, I was never going to move far away, and then I did. It happened because I was trying to answer this call on my life to go. I had friends that they took their ministry to Africa, and I thought, you are, that's insane. You have little kids. How are you going to live in a place like Africa? And I don't know that they'll ever come back. The work that God's been doing through them in those places is so amazing that they're like, I, they can't even imagine coming back to America. Jesus sent his disciples and still sends us today to all parts of the world to make disciples. Like I said, I think it's a call on all of us as followers of Jesus to do that work. I'm gonna go back to the scripture passage because there's two other things, two other actions that Jesus tells us to do in this passage. He says to baptize these new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Um, this is actually, this scripture passage is actually where our, our theology, like why we do what we do in our church here, uh, comes out of this, because we believe that baptism is one of two things that Christ commanded us to do. The other is to take, eat, and remember me. So we do communion and we do, we do baptism. Um, and it really comes out of this one passage right here. It's why we do it. And we do it a couple different ways here. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, we baptized a bunch of, of, of babies and young children. And we do that with the, uh, with the idea that God's covenant promises are true for them. And we as parents are presenting our children um, into those covenant promises that God is gonna love them and care for them and have his hand on their life. And they will eventually come to know who Jesus is and they will eventually be disciples of Jesus. And then the other way that we baptize people is once a year, we go to Lake Michigan in August and we ask anyone that wants to come into the water to come in with us. And sometimes we have people that are new believers. They've, they've just come to know 
who Jesus is and they wanna have that deep relationship with him and we get to be there for that moment that they're marking in their lives where their lives are gonna change forever. And for others, it's, it's a reaffirmation of their, of their infant baptism. Um, they're coming forward to say, I'm remembering that baptism and I'm gonna mark this moment in my life. But this is a moment in a disciple's life, right? It's, it's, it's a change. It's a time when they leave things behind and they move forward into what God has for them next. And the water is just a, a symbol of that. The water refreshes and sustains and, and um, cleanses us the way that Jesus does our spirits. So he, he commands them to go make disciples, baptize them, and then this is the end of the statement, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that's a lot of things, but you know what that includes? Make disciples, <laughs> right? Without this last statement, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, uh, without that, discipleship eventually ends with somebody. Because if we don't teach the next disciples to do what we're doing in making disciples, it ends. And that's what, unfortunately, I think is part of the problem with the American church today. I think we've forgotten to do that step. <laughs> like I said earlier, we've been talking a lot about discipleship this year, and, and I have to admit, we, we talk about that with the view of the American church clearly in front of us. And right now, the statistics on the church in America are pretty grim. So in 2022, I think it was the first year in the history of our country that less than 50% of people that at least were interviewed report that they are Christians. The number's shrinking. Our churches in this country are shrinking. But as we continued to talk about it with our staff and this idea of like, how do we continue to not only be better disciples, but to make more disciples. How do we do that? And we started coming up with ideas of how to do that. I actually started to feel hopeful. And at one point, I turned to Tom Ellenboss and I said, I don't think the American church has to die. I, I, I think, I think if we could engage the 3,000 or so people that, that say they belong to one of the harbor churches, there's about 3,000 people in this area. If we could really engage people with this, I think we're gonna be all right. Because that's really what this is about. Honestly, in this moment, in this passage, the disciples could have decided to do nothing, right? Jesus gives them a command and then he goes away. <laughs> Literally disappears from view. And, and they could have just decided that they're not, there's nothing really for them in this. And they could have gone back home and they could have gotten their old jobs back. They're, I'm sure you can always go back to fishing. Sure, there's openings for tax collectors. They could have done any of that. They could have decided, and, but they didn't. What they did was they sat and met together and said, how do we do this? How do we do this and where are we going? Who's going where? And they started making plans for how they were gonna continue this movement that Jesus had begun, Right? of the kingdom of heaven on earth. I think we also have a decision to make. We can decide that it's somebody else's job to tell people about Jesus. We can decide to pick and choose the things about what Jesus commanded us to do and, and put on the ones that feel comfortable and maybe leave the other ones behind us. 
We can decide that it's, that it's too difficult or awkward to talk to people about Jesus in this world today. People just don't want to hear that. They don't want to listen to it. Or we can pick up the work that was started so long ago on Mount Arbel and go into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools and in all the places we go and live out a life that reflects Jesus. I was thinking that maybe this year, again, thinking small steps, but maybe our New Year's resolution this year could be to do one new thing that Jesus modeled that maybe I don't do in my life. Just one thing. I'm gonna figure out how to do it this year. And by the end of the year, I'll, I'll, I'll be thinking about what's next. Or maybe it could be something like, I'm gonna tell one person this year about who Jesus is to me. If you're looking for New Year's resolutions, there's a couple possibilities for you. Would you pray with me, please? God, we, um, we have experienced you. It's why we're here today. We believe in you. We desire to follow you. Lord, may we take this passage seriously. That we would go. Maybe it's next door, maybe it's down the street, maybe it's a couple towns over, maybe it's across the country, maybe it's around the world. Lord, would we go and would we live our lives and tell our stories in a way that people would want to know who you are? May we never forget that we are in the disciple-making business. It is what you did and you have called us to do. And if we forget it, Lord, remind us. Remind us again that this is what we are called to do pray this in Jesus' name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.